The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Family Matters with your host, Dr. Virginia Collin. In this program, we will explore some of the challenges families face and the solutions they create in today's world, where marriage, parenting, and family forms are not what they once were. Now, here is Dr. Virginia Collin. Welcome to Family Matters. I'm your host, Virginia Collin, and I'm talking today with Julie Lithcott-Hames. Julie is a graduate of Stanford University and Harvard Law School, and has and she served as Dean of Freshman and Undergraduate Advising for 10 years at Stanford University. She's also the mother of t- two teenagers, and from working with freshmen at college and raising children herself, she has learned some really valuable lessons about how we raise our kids and has a lot of wisdom to share. Welcome to the show, Julie. Thanks for having me, Virginia. It's great to have you here. I want to let people know you've written a book, so whatever we don't cover in the show today, they can read about later. It's How to Raise an Adult. Break free of the overparenting trap and pre- prepare your kid for success. Um, and they can find you online at deanjulie.com. So, great, thanks. Let's talk about overparenting. You've discovered an epidemic of overparenting. Tell me about that. <laughs> well, yeah. So, I was a freshman dean at Stanford for 10 years, and uh, over the course of those 10 years, uh, 2002 to 2012, Every year we saw more and more parents coming to campus and not leaving. They wanted to be involved in the lives of their sons and daughters in a very practical way, asking questions, asking about opportunities, solving problems, registering. They just felt they had a significant role to play in their kids' college experience, which was a real departure from the past. So every year was bringing more and more parents wanting to be quite involved in the lives of their sons and daughters, and this was by no means a Stanford-only thing. I would talk to colleagues on campuses really all over the nation in every tier, and they were all seeing this. Um, At the same time, we were seeing a decline in the number of sons and daughters, 18 to 22-year-olds, who seemed to have the wherewithal to be an adult. I'll confess, Virginia, I didn't even know what that meant when I said it to myself, like, wow, they don't seem to have the wherewithal to be an adult. And I said, well, what is the wherewithal? Well, I'm not sure, but you kind of know it when you see it and when you don't. And, um, And then what I discovered further was that the students really appreciated their parents' involvement. And that's when it hit me that something was really off because, you know, it's a hallmark of adolescence and young adulthood that the, that the young person separates from the parent and forges their own path in their own way. And, you know, psychologists would say it's sort of a natural, normal part of human development. It wasn't happening. What was happening was young adults were highly accustomed to their parents, you know, overprotecting, you know, preventing and, and protecting them from, you know, the, the bumps and hurts of life, overdirecting, telling them what to do, how to do it. And then handholding, smoothing the path, arguing with authorities, reminding them of deadlines, you know, bringing them the things they'd forgotten. You know, having been raised according to this type of childhood, 
you know, no wonder as young adults, they were still quite grateful for mom or dad to really be there and do a lot of the, the hard thinking and the heavy lifting and the problem solving for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember getting to college and being really relieved that I was hundreds of miles away from my parents and they couldn't interfere in what I was doing at all. So that's a huge change. Yeah. You know, for, for kids to actually be glad that their parents are around. Yeah. You know, and when I first started writing about this, you know, I just had my hunches as a freshman dean, like this, something's wrong. Lately, there have been study after study that have come out linking a hovered over childhood, you know, over-involved parents with um, higher rates of anxiety and depression in the, in the child or the adult child. And, you know, so parents will say to me, well, what's the harm? I'm helping my kid get better grades and, you know, I'm planning their life for them. They end up, you know, their mental health is undercut and often they're lacking, you know, the life skills that come from doing and being and thinking for themselves along the way and the kind of work ethic and take the initiative capability that's needed in the workplace because they haven't had to really design and think things through for themselves. So, um, do you have a sense of how this started? How did parents start to be over-involved? I do. Um, we began seeing this um, in the late 90s on the campus at Stanford. I said I was dean from 2002 to 2012, but I was actually there from in different roles from 98 on. And round about 98, we began seeing this first wave of parents who came and um, and wanted to play a role. So I asked myself in writing the book, well, if 18-year-olds had parents coming to campus with them for the first time in 98, well, who are those 18-year-olds? Turns out they were the beginning of the millennial generation born in 1980, and they were subjected to a childhood that included the very first play date, the notion that parents should not only plan play, but watch play, hover over it, intervene if kids aren't getting along. They were subjected to the concept of stranger danger, which was um, the media sensationalization of a few horrific cases of child abduction, and it really bored into our minds as parents thinking this could happen at any time. Stranger danger. The third thing was a self-esteem movement. Promote, I mean, uh, you know, pr- uh, applaud kids for every little thing they do. And um, the fourth was the publication of a nation at risk, which said our students in America weren't faring as well against their international counterparts, and we needed more testing and teaching to the test. So in the early 80s, we had this confluence of, you know, parent involvement, encroachment in realms that were previously uh, the domain of children, play, activities, school, and homework. And they became the first set of kids to come to college with their parents. Got it. So, yeah, you do a good job of describing that in the book. So what's the antidote? What, what different way of raising children would work much better for helping them grow up to become competent, independent adults? Well, you know, that's really well put, Virginia. The way that I like to say it is our job as parents, if you think about it, if you really think about it, our job as parents is to put ourselves out of a job. We don't want to still need to parent this person, quote unquote, you know, into their mid to late 20s or 30s or beyond. So we've succeeded when our kid can fend for themselves out in the world. And fend doesn't mean, you know, text us or call us to handle it for them. So if you accept that that's our long-term goal, then you realize childhood offers opportunities every single day, every single stage to build skills in our kids so they will be independent from learning to cross the street by themselves to making a simple meal to remembering to, you know, 
put their stuff in their backpack and take it to school, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Childhood offers us the opportunity to build that responsibility and accountability and that skill set if we'll only wheel back off and let it. Mm -hmm. So that includes backing off, uh, staying out of it when kids are playing, letting them work things out on their own? Yeah, that's certainly part of it. Um, it Letting kids work things out on their own, that just doesn't happen anymore. You know, we think that their feelings will get hurt. Um, What we teach them is that they're incapable of resolving the problem. They only will learn to resolve interpersonal problems with other people by doing the work of it themselves in childhood. You know, if Mm -hmm. we do it for them, they end up as these young adults that don't know how to work out a problem with a roommate or a dormmate or a classmate or a colleague. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, socially it's really important to let kids work things out with their peers on their own and intervene only if there's, you know, a serious level of prolonged bullying. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. I mean, you know, a serious level of prolonged bullying, I think, you know, as parents, obviously, if if our kid is being systemically, you know, harmed either in in words or in behavior uh, by by someone else, we've got to pay attention to that and support them in talking about it and in stopping the behavior. Um, But we have a tendency these days to call um, many minor things bullying, um, which really attributes um, an intention to the quote-unquote bully that they most likely don't have. There being a kid who's, you know, who's going to be mean to another kid, and that's that's a part of life that happens. We've got to teach our kids that it happens. It's happened to other people. They can cope with it. You know, they can handle it. They can move on. You know, the person who's doing the bad behavior gets talked to, gets taught. You know, that's what's supposed to happen as opposed to just labeling a kid as a bully and kicking them out of school and treating, you know, our kid who was, quote, unquote, bullied like a victim all the time. Right. And you really want kids to learn how to stand up for themselves. (laughs) Right. So you also talked about how chores can make a valuable contribution towards a child learning to become independent. Tell me about that. Isn't that crazy? Chores sounds like such an old-fashioned term, um, but it's a very present, important thing that not enough of our kids are doing these days. Let me just pause and say, Virginia, I'm talking about um, middle and upper middle class families where parents have the, the time and income to spend on you know, hovering over their kids every moment. There are plenty of people who are listening who might say, what are you talking about? I give my kids chores. They have to do chores. They have to pitch in. And that's great. It's just fallen away, particularly in families that are affluent. Um, the longest study on uh, humans, as far as I know, is called the Harvard Grant Study. They looked at uh, about 700 guys uh, who went to college in the late 30s, and they tracked them all the way through life uh, up to death. And the greatest learnings from that study are, number one, professional success. Um, the greater professional success in life is indicated by having done chores as a kid. And the sooner the person started doing chores, the better in terms of their chances for professional success. And in a more existential or holistic sense, the study showed that happiness in life equals love, full stop, meaning it's the quality of your relationships with other humans, whether it's a romantic partnership or friendship, family relationships. It's the quality of those love relationships with other humans that determines your degree of happiness. So these are the things that matter. You know, love your child, make sure they're capable of love, make them do chores. You've probably given them, you know, a great foundation for a great life. 
The trouble is today, I'll just add, we don't have kids do chores because they're so busy doing homework. And they're so busy doing all the activities we think they need to do in order to get into the right colleges. I mean, it's just this narrow, narrow definition of success. You know, get into a certain college, have the grades and scores and the activities. We'll let you off the hook for dishes and garbage and laundry. And what that does is it, you know, it undercuts their ability to to know how to pitch in in the workplace that they've never had to pitch in at home. You know, this is why millennials have the reputation for just sort of sitting around in the workplace or wanting to be applauded at every turn. You know, they've not been asked to do the hard work of, you know, making a home run or making a home function, I mean, or, you know, pitching in and helping out to just clean things up and make the preparations. Uh, for things. So, you know, it's it's very basic and it's something we can fix in our homes today, you know, by just figuring out, all right, how old are our kids and what are they capable of? In my book, I have a list um, that I adapted, uh, that, that I republished from, that was printed elsewhere about the things, you know, kids are capable of doing by way of chores at every level, starting with little tiny kids who are two and three. So, you know, the book, How to Raise an Adult, is is the place you can look to for, okay, how can I start getting my kids to do chores? What should I make them do? I'll yeah. tell you. Read the book. Yeah. Yeah, I remember seeing recently a child who was only about two years old. I'm not sure he was even two years old. And he was holding the leash while the family's dog was being walked outside. It was a little dog, so a two-year-old could handle it. And I just thought, That's that great. is fantastic. This parent yeah. is giving this child the opportunity to make a real contribution. Right. <laughs> it was really great. Um, okay, we're going to take a break, and we'll be back in a minute. Most adults are able to make good decisions about how their families can move forward. They do not need to rely on courts to make such decisions, especially in cases of divorce. Far too many people suffer unnecessary anguish because they do not know what family mediators can do. We help people discuss problems constructively in a private, confidential setting. We help them stop fighting and stay out of court. To learn more about mediation and other family matters, Visit ColinFamilyMediationGroup.com. Colin has one L and no S. Are you struggling with emotional, financial, and legal stress related to divorce? The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia by Virginia Collin and Rebecca Martin teaches how to handle these processes in any state with special attention to Virginia's laws. This book can help you take care of yourself get free legal advice, develop a good co-parenting plan, keep expenses down, and arrange a do-it-yourself divorce. The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia is available from Amazon for just $4.99. Family members too often find themselves in court arguing about separation, parenting schedules, financial issues, divorce, estates, or care of an elderly relative. There's a better way to solve a family problem. Work with a professional mediator in private, confidential meetings. To learn more, visit the Academy of Professional Family Mediators at apfmnet.org. That's apfmnet.org. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
are listening to Family Matters. To reach Dr. Virginia Collin or today's guest, please call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radioshow at collinfamilymediationgroup.com. Now, back to Family Matters. Welcome back to Family Matters. I'm Virginia Collin talking with Julie Lithcott-Hames. So we've been talking about what's a good way to raise kids without uh, being over-involved, without doing things for them that they can do for themselves. What's a good way to help kids learn to um, share in the, the family's work and be responsible for their own schoolwork and, and think you, you have a really yeah. good section in the book about critical thinking. Tell me about that. Yeah, yeah. Well, if we are um, certain that we know what's best for our kids in terms of what they should study or what they should become by way of career or profession, and we lay that path for them, they end up leading a kind of spoon-fed childhood existence, you know, where the information gets digested and chewed up, chewed up and digested by us. We give it to them, and then they just spit it back out. And they don't learn to think for themselves. They just are really good at doing what we say. Um, they might be obedient, but, you know, we don't need a nation of obedient, you know, adults. We need a, a nation of adults who can really think for themselves, take a piece of information and and investigate it, inquire as to its veracity, decide what they want to do with it. You know, we need them to be thinkers and doers and problem solvers out at, in our great nation one day. So we've got to teach them how to think, not just to memorize and regurgitate or not just to do um, what pleases us. Do you want to share some detailed ideas about how you can help kids learn to think for themselves? Yeah. um, You know, I've got actually some dialogues in the book where I suggest how you can have a conversation with, you know, your little one or your middle schooler or your high schooler. Um, to really engage them in critical thinking. You know, so for an example, with a little preschooler who says, oh, a butterfly, you know, the bad conversation is, great job, yes, that's a butterfly, you're so smart, (laughs) you know. There's no learning happening there. There's no thinking happening. What you want to do is take what the kid already knows, that's a butterfly, and engage them in further inquiry so they learn the thing or two. So the kid says, oh, a butterfly. You can say, yeah, what's the butterfly doing? Oh, it's on a flower. That's right. What do you think the butterfly is doing on that flower? Well, does it like the flower because it's pretty, says the kid? Well, maybe you say, what else might it be doing? And so on. You get to the point that actually the butterfly is getting nectar from the flower and, you know, contributing to this whole pollination process. And, um, you know, that's just an example of how, you know, by continually asking good questions of our kids, um, rather than just applauding them for what they already know, we're teaching them to think. Excellent. Excellent example. Yeah. Can you say anything about teaching kids to be persistent in thinking, you know, if they can't come up with a good solution first try? Well, you know, what we want to do, according to Carol Dweck, who's a researcher in psychology at Stanford, she's pioneered the concept of growth mindset. And this is the notion that, you know, we don't applaud our kid for being smart when they get a good grade or do well. You know, we applaud their effort. And so when you're able to say, you work really hard on that, you must feel really good, you know, when they get an A, um, that teaches them that hard work is what pays off in the end. It teaches them that they're in control of 
through their effort making of their outcomes. Um, and so, you know, persistence in thinking is, um, is all about knowing, you know, I can stay at this. You know, I'm not a failure if I don't get it right the first time. One of the best ways we can teach our kids that is to let them know about the struggles we've had, you know, the times when things didn't go right for us or we made a poor decision that we then had to kind of undo or get or, or fix or um, live with. And often our kids see us as perfect because we don't share the ways in which our life has been filled with struggle or disappointment or failure and that we've learned from it. So letting our kids know the lessons we've learned, quote unquote, the hard way that turn out to be really valuable helps normalize for them that struggle happens and that persisting through life's challenges is really, you know, you know, how we find joy and, um, you know, feel a sense of accomplishment. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, you um, you mentioned somewhere um, to kind of get out of their way, stop taking care of everything for them, let them do it for themselves, and that includes interacting with the adults in their life on their behalf. Could you say more about that? Um, I guess you absolutely. Would... Okay, go. <laughs> um, you know, stop, stop taking care of everything. Stop arguing with the adults in their life. Who are the adults in their life? Principals, teachers, coaches, referees, these folks are under siege by well-meaning but over-involved parents who are questioning every single thing. You know, what we've got to do is teach our kids to actually do for themselves. And so, you know, when there's a problem, you know, something seems to have been graded unfairly or a kid wants greater opportunity, you know, in the classroom or on the playing field, you know, we've got to teach our kids to speak up for themselves. There's a local school district, uh, not district, a local school here in Palo Alto um, named Cahila that has as part of its, um, you know, its purpose, its philosophy of educating children that young children will be the ones to go to a teacher and express a need or concern. They want to build that skill set and that mindset in kids. You know, kids who have everything done or handled for them end up feeling they're not capable without their parent. It's a terribly insidious message that bores into their developing brains that I'm not actually good enough on my own. You know, I can't do it on my own. I can't try. My mom or dad needs to do it for me. So, yeah, we've, we've really got to stop. Yeah. And as you say in the book, this comes out of love. It comes out of wanting to give your child the best life you can give them. But really, you're getting in their way. <laughs> That's exactly right. It also comes out of ego, Virginia. I have to say, and I think, you know, many of us know this intrinsically, even though it's hard to acknowledge, we're way too caught up in our kids' performance, and we feel that their outcomes are are a reflection of of our worth as humans. And so, you know, our kid does well in a contest, competition, you know, academically, whatever. We feel better about ourselves. And, you know, that's incredibly unhealthy psychologically for the kid to feel that our, you know, um, sense of self and wellness goes up or down based on their accomplishments or lack thereof. It's also really, you know, it's harmful for them psychologically. It's harmful for us. Um, so we've, if we acknowledge that piece, just like, wait a minute, it's their life, not mine. I'm not a better or worse person because my kid has an A, B, or C, or worse. You know, it's, it's just, you know, we, we've got to step away a little bit psychologically and then we, we're so much more capable of just seeing our kid for who they are, supporting them and being the best version of themselves they can be. That's a really good point. 
Uh, one of the other things you talk about in your book is how some of what's gone wrong with childhood and what's gone wrong with parenting is connected to the huge emphasis we put on getting into the right college. Tell me more about that. Yeah. Um, look, a college education is very valuable. And when you look at um, a certain sector of jobs, more necessary than ever if one's to be competitive. Plenty of people are successful without going to college. Plenty of people go to community colleges and have an amazing experience there. When it comes to the four-year college um, experience, we've been, quite frankly, duped by U.S. News and World Report into thinking there are only a handful of colleges and universities worth looking at, and they're simply wrong. Um, They're making money off of our fears, and they exacerbate those fears every year by publishing those lists. As an educator, I know that a fantastic college education is to be had at hundreds of our nation's 2,800 colleges and universities. I say a fantastic education is to be had at hundreds. You know, um, I'd like to say the top 5% of anything are magnificent. And for colleges and universities in America, that's 140 schools, and most of which don't have cutthroat admission rates. So we've got to just abandon the U.S. news mindset that suggests we can only be proud or excited if our kid goes to one of a handful of highly elite schools that are impossible to get into. It widen our blinders, you know, be willing to look at a much bigger list of schools. I really advocate the colleges that change lives list, it's 40 small, small, small colleges, you know, where uniformly people say afterwards, this place changed my life. Well, that's a really good thing. They focus on teaching and mentoring college students, building a residential community. So we can widen our blinders around which schools matter. And we can also take a more utilitarian approach, as Malcolm Gladwell has written about in David and Goliath. He said, look, you actually you know, have more opportunities coming your way after college if you do really well at the college. So don't go to the most elite college you can get into. Attend a college that was easier for you to get into, where you're more likely to be one of the top students there, because the top students everywhere get access to more faculty attention, greater opportunities for research, and so on. So, you know, there are all kinds of really good reasons not to just aim for the, you know, the the, tip, the schools at the tippy top of that U.S. news list. Bill DeRisowitz, who wrote Excellent Sheep, has said at those, you know, U.S. news top schools, 90% in the, uh, by his estimation, 90% of the student body have been test prepped up the wazoo just to get there and aren't necessarily the most interesting students, you know, to be have as friends or classmates. Mm. So um, I'm connecting some dots here. So the teaching to the test and all the standardized testing has turned out to be not good for kids, not good for parents, not good for teachers. And the hyper focus on getting into a really great college has been not good for kids. Yeah. And I would say it's the, the concept really great college um, is falsely defined right now. We've, what, what people mean by that is really great brand name and the brand name you know, it says nothing about the actual quality of the undergraduate experience there. So um, we've just got to widen our blinders and appreciate there's great teaching and mentoring of undergraduates at so many schools. I want to take this opportunity to remind my listeners that they can learn more about what you're teaching here by visiting deanjulie.com and they can read more about it in your book, How to Raise an Adult, which made me fall in love with it just by its title. <laughs> Let's raise our kids to be adults. Not everybody's doing that. Thanks, Virginia. 
Okay. Well, thanks a lot. Um, maybe we'll talk again soon. Are you struggling with emotional, financial, and legal stress related to divorce? The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia by Virginia Collin and Rebecca Martin teaches how to handle these processes in any state with special attention to Virginia's laws. This book can help you take care of yourself, get free legal advice, develop a good co-parenting plan, keep expenses down, and arrange a do-it-yourself divorce. The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia is available from Amazon for just $4.99. Most adults are able to make good decisions about how their families can move forward. They do not need to rely on courts to make such decisions, especially in cases of divorce. Far too many people suffer unnecessary anguish because they do not know what family mediators can do. We help people discuss problems constructively, In a private, confidential setting, we help them stop fighting and stay out of court. To learn more about mediation and other family matters, visit ColinFamilyMediationGroup.com. Colin has one L and no S. No one can tell you how much money you'll have or when you'll see your children, right? Sadly, that's wrong. It happens every day in divorce court. Don't let it happen to you. When dealing with separation, divorce, or co-parenting, there is a better way. Family mediation. Save time, save money, and make good plans for your children. Visit the Academy of Professional Family Mediators at apfmnet.org. That's apfmnet.org. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Family Matters. To reach Dr. Virginia Collin or today's guest, please call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radio show at ColinFamilyMediationGroup.com. Now, back to Family Matters. Welcome back to Family Matters. I'm your host, Virginia Collin, professional family mediator. And my guest for the second half of the show today is um, a novelist, Vita Stamps. She has written a lovely book, Flexible Wings, that focuses on an 11-year-old girl and her family and friends. And it, uh, we're going to take some of the themes from the first half of the show and talk about how these things play out uh, in a book and in the lives that inspired the book to some extent. Um, in in kids who are, you know, maybe 9 to 12 or 13 years old. So, Vita, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Okay. This is your first novel, is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Okay. So, tell me um, a little bit about uh, what got you started writing it. I uh, About two years ago, I was working on a a different novel about a community in my um, neighborhood um, in New Orleans. And I was attending my daughter's swim meet 
and just became overwhelmed and excited about what I was witnessing. And basically what that is, is that the parents who were volunteers, volunteering their time at each event, um, I was watching what was taking place and realized that all these parents had created this wonderful wonderful environment for their children, Um, an environment that felt warm, loving, and a ton of fun. So it was almost this little wonderland at a swim meet that didn't feel like, you know, a lot of times you'll feel when you're attending a soccer meet or, you know, it feels very competitive. This was a very loving environment, and the children seemed to be enjoying themselves in the spirit of competition. So that was the initial... um, moment that sparked um, this entire book called Flexible Wings. Um, But then obviously the book evolved after that. Okay. Um, Did you have a certain goal in mind in writing the novel? Yes. Uh, The goal that I had um, was to create a book that would be very enjoyable for, as you mentioned, kids to read between the ages of 9 and 13. And it's interesting because shortly after I wrote quite a few scenes that included um, this community having a great time, swim competitions, it it evolved into a story that I noticed the character was was very um, sad. And the main character in the book is called um, Summer Stevenson. And she seemed very, you know, like there was something wrong with her. And I, sh- I realized that um, after having a dream that the little girl was actually a military child. And so once I f- realized that in my spirit, in my heart, um, that set a different tone um, besides the enjoyable part of the book that was a lot deeper And I wanted to explore this issue around community and what is it, what is our role as members of community and members of a neighborhood um, in helping children and empowering children to uh, overcome their problems and fears. And in Summer's particular case, her mother is actually a fighter pilot and her mother goes off to to a deployment And, you know, Summer obviously is very concerned about her mother and she's also in a new, brand new community where she doesn't have any friends and she feels very isolated and alone. She has her little sister, but that's about it. And so thus marks the the experience of this community embracing her and she embracing the community. And so that was, the goal was to actually make sure that I did, um, a really good job because I, I don't have a military background. So I wanted to make sure that, you know, I um, definitely showed the reality of what it's really like to be a military child. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you do that actually very well. I was impressed with the uh, vividness of the child's sense of, oh my gosh, how am I going to make friends in a new place? I'll just barely make friends and then it'll be time we'll have to move again. Why do my parents keep doing this to me? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it came through, um, you know, in a very believable way. Um, Thank you. 
I have to say that one of my first, um, I had several um, editorial reviews done, and one of the first ones that really meant a lot to me is that it just so happened that one of the reviewers, she was a stay-at-home mother um, of a military officer, a naval officer, and um, so, but she, you know, several very educated um, women who you know, basically offsetted her income by doing reviews. And she came back and said that she felt like it was a very realistic portrayal. And that meant a lot because I felt like I hit the mark at that point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, what are some of you deal with a lot in this book you deal with uh sports and competition and making friends you also have comments about race and community and volunteerism um tell me more about um a community stepping in and helping out the mom is a fighter pilot she gets deployed abroad now we've got dad and two girls who have to, you know, carry on. Um, Ex- go ahead. Exactly. There's there's a, there's a couple of layers um, in terms of how I um, deal with the issue of others coming in and jumping in and providing support. Um, and and you know. It's a military family, but obviously it serves as a metaphor to other types of families that are not non-traditional. And maybe they, you know, it's not a two-parent household. And it, you know, so in this particular um, case, Summer actually, her, the later in the book, Summer's grandmother, which um, Summer is actually African-American in part Japanese, and um, Summer's grandmother, who she calls Bachan, comes to stay with them for a while while her mom's deployed to help out with the dad. And the dad is um, basically also starting a new business. So he's not very much uh, accessible. And he also has just kind of come out of a bout of PTSD. So... Um, so he's not always as present as Summer would like or her little sister would like. So the grandmother serves as a buffer sort of in, within the family structure. But on the outside of the family, um, there are lots of uh, people who serve as mentors in her life, one of which is two coaches, um, the main coach who helps to try to get her to uh, see why it's important to stay on a team because she wants to quit after she realizes that she is not going to be like her um, idol Olympia and Leah Neal, um, who's also African-American and thinks that she won't be as good as her. So then she wants to quit. And so the coach sort of comes in and, and helps her realize that, you know, or maybe she should reconsider. And so... So the coaches definitely serve as a, an alternate to um, parental support, uh, but not overly. Summer does do a lot of, of problem sol- solving on her own by using um, things like a hummingbird who she sees as fearless and 
admirable. So she uses the hummingbird as a way of overcoming some of her fears as well. Okay. How does the hummingbird become that symbol for her? Well, she actually, um, she was exposed to research about um, hummingbirds and, and learned that, you know, hummingbirds are fearless. They fly over um, the Gulf of Mexico. They travel thousands of miles and, um, and they're so very tiny and they're very little. But yet these little bitty birds um, show very little signs of, of fear in her eyes. And, um, and there's a moment in the beginning of the book where when she first moves to the new community in Valencia, California, and the hummingbird swoops in front of her face and is just sort of hovering there, staring at her. And she's sort of like, wow, you know, this little bitty bird has, um, doesn't seem to be afraid of me. And, and so throughout the book, the hummingbird is symbolic to uh, fearlessness, but it also is represents in a lot of ways her mother um and in in some ways is the opposite of her mom is a very rigid type of personality um extremely ambitious and uh and so the hummingbird with its flexible wings sort of serves as this um of a more flexible uh um pliable um entity versus her mother who is much more stringent and um and is a fighter pilot (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) hovering in in helicopters so um which is not very flexible so so yeah okay yeah i will confess that i had very mixed feelings about some of the instructions this fighter pilot mom gave to her 11 year old daughter She told her to be strong on behalf of the father and the little sister. And that seemed like a lot to burden a child with. And and the child even says that in the book. You know, can I just be a kid and play? Why do I have to be strong for my dad? Right. Um, Well, that came out of the research of um, getting to know what it's like to be a military child. And in a lot of cases, that's what's expected. Not in all cases, but in a lot of cases, that's what is expected of them, which is to be strong for their siblings if they're the older, um, be responsible, um, sort of have that military pride. And um, that means toughness. And And that is what, you know, I wanted to make sure that you know, that's who she is. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, there were a few people who are, were really, um, felt overwhelmed by that scene, um, as well as other scenes later on in the book in terms of the choices of the mother choices. And then obviously once you're enlisted too, there's some things that are, they're no longer your choice, but, uh, but that was, that was her reality. So as a, as a military kid, Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I I think that you handled that well in the book. It it we we see both sides of it. We see how this is really hard for her to deal with, but also how she takes it and uses it as a way to kind of pump herself up and make herself strong. 
she doesn't want to disappoint her mom and she does want her little sister to be well looked after. Absolutely. And you know, it 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 looking from the lens of of an 11-year-old girl, uh, you know, there's over 2 million kit 2 million military kids um that are out there Is around that the just, world. Just for the US? No. Just in, I mean all c- combined that are in, enrolled active duty. So there's over 10 2 million military um children out there throughout the world. And uh and you know a lot of them are experiencing feelings of, you know, abandonment and um, worry about their kid, their parents, you know, being deployed uh, two to three, sometimes four times, you know, uh, within a couple of years time. So they're experiencing a lot. And I wanted to make sure that and that's why the book starts off with her questioning, you know, whether or not her parents are heroes, the way that a lot of people are referring to them, you know, on a daily basis, you know, she says, you know, heroes, everyone uses that word except for me. Of course, that evolves throughout the book. And she starts to see things from a wider lens um, as she's maturing a little bit and also just um, watching others who are going through things or who experience who are, who have experienced greater losses than she's ever experienced gets her to start to see things a little broader um, and a little bit from her parents' perspective. Vita, I'm going to interrupt you here because we're going to take a break and we'll be back soon talking more about the Japanese grandmother and being a biracial child and other aspects of the story and life. (laughs) Most adults are able to make good decisions about how their families can move forward. They do not need to rely on courts to make such decisions, especially in cases of divorce. Far too many people suffer unnecessary anguish because they do not know what family mediators can do. We help people discuss problems constructively in a private, confidential setting. We help them stop fighting and stay out of court. To learn more about mediation and other family matters, Visit ColinFamilyMediationGroup.com. Colin has one L and no S. Are you struggling with emotional, financial, and legal stress related to divorce? The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia by Virginia Collin and Rebecca Martin teaches how to handle these processes in any state with special attention to Virginia's laws. This book can help you take care of yourself get free legal advice, develop a good co-parenting plan, keep expenses down, and arrange a do-it-yourself divorce. The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia is available from Amazon for just $4.99. Family members too often find themselves in court arguing about separation, parenting schedules, financial issues, divorce, estates, or care of an elderly relative. 
There's a better way to solve a family problem. Work with a professional mediator in private, confidential meetings. To learn more, visit the Academy of Professional Family Mediators at APFMNet.org. That's APFMNET.org. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. listening to Family Matters. To reach Dr. Virginia Collin or today's guest, please call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radio show at collinfamilymediationgroup.com. Now, back to Family Matters. I'm your host, Virginia Collin, on Family Matters, talking today with Vita Stamps, the author of Flexible Wings, which is a novel for kids who are 9 to maybe 13 years old. Um, Let's see. We were talking during the break about the main character's braids. Let's take it from there. Tell me about Summer's braids and what they mean in the book. Yeah, so Summer has a head full of individual braids, um, and the braids are a symbol of uh, what Summer experiences as an African-American girl. She's she's a very, um, there's a lot of times when Summer moves to new communities, people don't even really know what her ethnic background is. She's very fair in complexion. And so it's usually very, and she has a lot more of the features, Asian feature, features um, from her father's mother's side of the family. So the braids though represent um, the fact that she, how she identifies herself as well as how others view her. And she's oftentimes teased about her braids um and so when she's moving to the new community she sort of dreads that experience of the questions around her race and even possibly um being teased about it um she in the book she mentions a story about how a boy um that she liked her first crush um teased her about her braids by saying you know she, he would never date a girl who has, you know, an Asian girl who has braids. So there's like lots of references to that, you know, um, experience. And then I use it as a way in her skin color as she darkens in the summertime, her skin color becomes darker. And uh, she talks about her, her pride in, in the fact that um, she's actually becoming darker. Um, and there's more to that relating to um, stories that her grandmother, um, Bachan, relays to her that makes her think about race a little bit. Okay. Are there takeaway lessons for the readers of the book uh, about, you know, taking pride in your multi-ethnic heritage or anything like that? Yeah, there's a couple of things that uh, the reader will take away. One is, I think, um, for those kids who are not um, from um, an African-American background, I think they'll 
they'll have a better sense of how to approach a child. Um, you know, one of the things that Summer mentions is that she hates when people touches when people touch her hair without you know, permission or they're just kind of touching it and they're almost making her feel like she's an animal in a, in a zoo. Like she's strange or bizarre by just randomly touching them and asking her tons of questions. So I think the reader will take away an understanding. And obviously this is not the feeling of every African-American child who has braids, but I think um, many do and they feel uncomfortable and Put on, well, put on the spot when people make too much of a big deal about them. Mm-hmm. The other thing is um, because she's um, biracial, uh, there's a, also a large discussion around um, the Japanese culture in America. And with her grandmother, her grandmother actually experienced what it was like to be in the Japanese internment camps. And, um, and so her grandmother shut to help summer deal with a bullying incident. Her summer, her grandmother Bachan tells her a story of living in the internment camps and what that was like. And they had, uh, a, you know, a bully there in the internment camp and how her grandmother dealt with it, you know? So, so there's threads and it's very multi-layered and, and not because we are talking about a story for nine to, you know, 13 year olds, um, race is dealt with in a very, um, respectable, respectful way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think I would like to hear more about either the community that you create for the novel or the community that you and your kids actually experienced where it sounds like parents and coaches were at, were getting things right. Um, you know, you weren't getting, you know, overdoses of competition or, or kids, parents pushing their kids too hard to achieve the parents' vision of success. Is there anything you can say about how this group of parents and coaches got it right? What could other people learn from them and copy from them so that there'd be more, more communities where people are doing well with this? Yes. So the community, um, the inspiration, uh, the community is Valencia, California, which I actually live in. And the neighborhood, um, there's, there's actually two a couple of different um, teams and it's different in the book, but in reality there's a couple of teams that inspired me and they, they merged into one. But what this community is doing right, I think in terms of um, setting up competitions is they really create a family atmosphere and it starts with volunteerism. You know, once you get involved on the team Everyone has to pitch in from the smallest little kid all the way to the oldest adult. The other thing that was very interesting in terms of providing inspiration was um, a lot of of multi-generational involvement. You would see grandparents um, dancing and singing in the, in, the, in the aisles or around the pool as they watched, you know, while music blared, the uh, DJ was playing music and, and um, parents were watching their kids uh, swim competitively. Um, there was this fun 
uh, atmosphere that was created. And, and, um, and I attribute that to um, successfully creating um, a volunteer program where you, you had roles. And, and part of that was to create, you know, fun activities for the kids that are waiting around for their siblings and, um, and very supportive. So every kid that, that came out of a pool felt supported in some way. You know, if they didn't do well, they were supported. And not in a way that is like, oh, let's, let's give every kid that, you know, <laughs> is doing something a prize, but definitely in a, in a loving way and in a supportive way, in an empowering, empowering way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I want to remind people that if they want to learn more about you or your book, they can go to www.vedastamps.com. That's V-E-D-A stamps.com. What else would you like to tell the audience? Well, I think that um, I would definitely love for them to um, uh pick up a copy of the book. They can um, actually get flexible wings at their local um, bookstore. If it's not at their bookstore, they can request it um, at any, you know, major bookstore dealer. Um, it's also available online at on Amazon um, and on my website, as you just mentioned, www.vitastamps.com. And, um, I think they'll enjoy it. Okay. I would uh, give the same recommendation because I liked it. I want to also mention just before we close that I did another show on a similar topic back on August 25th. I talked with Jessica Leahy about letting your kids fail because that's how they learn. And I think that fits the theme of the first half of tonight's show where Julie Lithcott-Haynes was telling us about not doing too much for your kids. Let your kids do for themselves so they become competent. And that's something that we see in your novel, that kids face challenges and figure out how to handle it and be, and develop skills that they didn't have before and become competent. Um. So, any last thoughts? Half a minute. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would let I would thank you very much for having me on the show. Um, I really have enjoyed the experience and listening in as well. Okay. Well, thanks a lot for being here. Thank you. Thank you for joining us this week on Family Matters. Please tune in for another edition featuring host Dr. Virginia Collin next Tuesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Be kind, heal, and grow. Grow.